welcome to episode two of the Zcash Review. I'm Matty Corsell. And I'm Austin Williams. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about the design and execution of the parameter generation ceremony needed to start off the Zcash blockchain. Uh, last episode, we talked with Matthew Green and we uh, learned more about why we need this initial trusted setup right now. And today we're going to talk about how they actually pulled it off. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a really fun show today. Uh, Matt, you want to talk about our sponsorships? Yeah, definitely. So today on the show, we have two sponsors. The first sponsor is Decred, uh, which is a decentralized, open and progressive cryptocurrency with community-based governance built straight into its blockchain. It's a really cool project trying to solve some of the biggest issues with Bitcoin. Uh, you should check them out at decred.org. Our second sponsor is GPU Source. GPU Source uh, provides sourcing solutions for scaling small and large mining operations uh, for people who want a GPU mine. So if you want to mine like a pro, check them out at gpusource.com. Awesome, sounds good. Uh, today on our show, um, we have Zuko Wilcox, and uh, he's the CEO of the Zcash company, and he's going to be talking about how they uh, they went about doing this parameter generation ceremony. We also got really lucky. We have uh, Andreas Antonopoulos called in. He joined us for about an hour on the show too. Uh, that guy's fantastic. We have a uh, so this conversation that we started with. Zuko and Andreas was really interesting. It started right out the gate talking about this strange anomaly that, that took place during the during the, the the very beginning of the ceremony, right? So we have like these five or six different uh, stations all over the world, each trying to generate a, a shard uh, needed. And we got Peter Todd in the desolate Canadian highways. Yeah, we have Peter Todd. We have Zuko in a hotel. We have like two people we don't haven't even identified yet. They're just sort of mystery people that were uh, out there. One of them could be Satoshi. Yeah, you never know. And uh, so an interesting thing is this, this strange anomaly sort of happened at the, the beginning, at least at Zuko station in, the, in a hotel room. And he had some, uh, some people there helping him out. And, and yeah, it was like this, this- Weird feedback coming through on the phone. Um, it's, it was really strange anomaly. Uh, there's actually video footage out there on YouTube uh, that you can check out. Yeah, let's see if we can link to them. We should probably link to those in the, in the show notes. It was really bizarre. So we, we, we talk about those, that's like right where the conversation starts. And so the first voice you're gonna hear is Andreas. Calling in from Buenos Aires. Yeah, the connection wasn't great, but uh, we can still hear him, he's still there. So yeah, hey, take a listen, listen to the conversation, it's fun. Okay. So what does the video show? It shows, um, we're hanging out in this hotel room where we've been for almost a day and a half at this point and we're all bored and uh then you know we're just chatting we're like tinkering with the network to make sure that the network is up to get ready for the next stage and then there starts to be feedback in the room and so we go around switching off mics to turn off the feedback and then we forget all about it because turning off the mic stopped the feedback and the the mic that the thing that we turned off that stopped the feedback was the software mute in the Hangouts chat that we were using to coordinate with each other. So when we, when we, when we muted the Hangouts chat on my laptop, the feedback stopped. So then we forgot all about it, and I, I, turned my, I unmuted myself in Hangouts to start talking to people about tinkering with our network. And the, my voice came echoing out of this other audio in the room. And after a few seconds of, like, confusion, we figured out that my voice was coming out of the speakerphone on 
Morgan's phone. Morgan was the journalist for Mitra Police Spectrum who was there to observe. She brought her crappy old Android phone with her. So my voice was coming out of her phone, like echoing out like a fraction of a second later after I spoke it into our Hangouts chat. And she wasn't uh, invited to the call, like the Hangouts chat call. Uh, that's what we said in the in the conversation. That's what we thought at the time. Uh, but we later determined that her phone had received the link to that Hangouts chat. Ah, uh, okay. That's good to know. Yeah, so it's possible that her phone could have connected to the Hangouts chat. That, that makes sense. However, there's still something really weird going on, which is that her phone was sitting unattended on the dresser in the hotel room, right? Like, she wasn't messing with it. Mm-hmm. She uh-huh. never... So she didn't... She never, yeah. she never deliberately connected to the Hangout. Right. Much less put it in speakerphone mode. Also, we have the video evidence that shows that there are four people shown as members of the Hangout at that time, and Morgan's not one of them. Oh, that's interesting. All four of the other people are connected. That is interesting. Um, so, so something really weird happened. So uh, we, we got her to donate her phone to science and turned it over to a hacker that I trust. <laughs> uh, but we haven't gotten a result yet from examination of that phone. And, you know, it, the, the, the examination might not show anything. Like if, if the attackers, if, the, if it was a malicious act, then the attackers could, mm-hmm. have, could have covered their tracks, just depending on how sophisticated and how much they cared to cover their tracks. Sure. Yeah. So we might not even learn anything after we analyze the phone. Um, <laughs> so that was exciting and interesting. And after a few minutes of like being dumbfounded and then trying to investigate and figure out what the hell's going on, then, and then the, then the audio feedback stopped. Like, after about two or three minutes, it just stopped happening. Like, it turned itself off. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> so then we were like, okay, what do we do now? Uh, and then we said, okay, well, even if some kind of attacker compromised Morgan's phone, that actually gets them not really any closer to compromising our process. Because the compute node that has the private key shard that's sitting over here on this table is completely air-gapped and doesn't have a radio and doesn't have a network. Okay. And this is only one of six stations around the world. (laughs) And the attackers don't, in all likelihood, the attackers don't even know where the other stations are. (laughs) Right. Much less would be able to compromise any of them um, because they're operated by five other people who have their own defenses and are also information security experts. So you know what? Fuck it, we're just going to finish the ceremony and generate the parameters, and we'll investigate the phone later. Right. That was the end of what. That was the end of it. Yeah, and to do any sort of like uh, side channel attacks, maybe like uh, power analysis and things like that, the phone would have to be pretty close to the compute node, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's that's an actual issue. There's two issues, but um, that was something that we did like on the spot because we we thought it through. We thought through side channel issues in advance. Um, Probably the leading expert in the world at side channel attacks is Aaron Tromer, uh, who's one of the Zcash team. And um, we had consulted with him and some other scientists in advance about what kind of side channel precautions we should take. Um, but then after the fact, then we went back to him and we were like, okay, so remember how we talked about side channels in advance and we figured like a nice big air gap was sufficient? Now, what if, well, let's reconsider this in light of the possibility that there actually was a live attacker with a, you know, whatever kind of radios right there in the room. And his answer was, he can't entirely rule it out, but it would 
be it would require exceptional luck that the the particular hardware that we bought from at random from a store would have to sort of be have some accidental really bad feature and the particular algorithm that we use to compute using the secret would have to accidentally do the worst possible thing and the phone would have to you know be exceptionally lucky in terms of its hardware and location and also the also he said the the attacker would have had to in order to read any information about the secret key shard through that side channel the attacker would have had to have written an optimized custom algorithm for this particular radio pair uh. and and algorithm in advance and <laughs> like I'm pretty sure no attackers in the world even knew most of the information about the about the process about the ceremony right like we purchased yeah, that like a long shot we purchased that yeah. computer the day before from a store that we just drove to in random um, without using our phones like we, we got out a big paper map and marked the store on it <laughs> without without looking up the store on Google um, nice. and turned off our phones and drove to the store and uh, said to the salesman we want one of these computers and the salesman said okay well there are two sitting here in cardboard boxes on the showroom floor you can have this one and we said no no we want the other one and he was like okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, so anyway, so 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 at on the spot when the phone anomaly happened, we did some like really quick back of the envelope analysis, and we were like, you know what? There's almost no chance that no matter who the attacker is, and no matter how much money and preparation they had, that they could get any information out of this compute node with that phone. Uh, much less the other five compute nodes, which are operated by different people using different defenses, and the attacker probably doesn't even know who those people are. So, fuck it. We're just not going to worry about this at this time. Because the important thing at that point was to get the parameters generated. Because it took three consecutive days of effort under high security mode. And uh, what I was most afraid of was that someone's power would go out or something. And we'd have to start over. Oh, gee. Yeah. Are we uh, starting the... Uh, uh, yeah. Are, are we uh, recording we that? I have a recording of this, but... But I don't know. Okay, so are, are you re you are recording right now? That's right. I started recording like when I rejoined a few minutes ago. So I can send you a recording of all this. You can use it. If that's, you want. that's okay. The the rogue phone has been recording for weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, folks, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with this conversation in just a minute. Imagine a world where you are directly involved in determining the future of your blockchain. A world where your investment evolves with your vote. A world where funding is a feature, not an issue. Meet Decred, a decentralized, autonomous organization that is changing the way we look at blockchains. Issues of consensus are now a thing of the past thanks to technology that forks the way holders vote. Smart contracts, Golang codebase, and a unique consensus system, all brought to you by the creators of BTC Suite. Visit decred.org for more information. Decred, rethink digital currency. I guess to get into the, to the beginning of the show, Zuko, is the creator and co-founder of and CEO of the Zcash company. And 
maybe you can, I guess, provide us more information about your background in the cryptocurrency space and how you uh, got involved into the Zcash project. Um, my background in the cryptocurrency space started when I was 19 years old in about 1993, when I went to college and discovered the science papers of David Chom, who had invented uh, so much. That guy... He, he's one of the cryptographers who heroically arrested the science of cryptography from the control of the military in the 1980s and late 70s. And he also invented most of the fundamental scientific uh, basis of privacy in networks, uh, which is still the basis of pretty much everything we do today. And he also invented the first concept of private money or private payments, private cash cryptographically private cash. So, um, you know, back then, I don't even know, where did I get those science papers? I probably heard about them on the Cypherpunks mailing list, and I probably went to an FTP site and downloaded the PDF from an FTP site, or the, actually it was probably PostScript, and um, printed them out on the university's printers. And then I remember sitting under a tree on the lawn at the University of Colorado at Boulder and getting so excited. Like, you remember when you started to appreciate Bitcoin and you fell down the rabbit hole and you like, couldn't think about anything else but Bitcoin? Uh, that happened to me with David Chom's papers uh, in 1993. I started thinking about nothing else except that kind of science. And uh, shortly thereafter, the, the company that David Chom had founded to commercialize the private money scheme, they announced a... Um, a play money test net called Cyberbucks, and they said they will give some kind of recognition or award for the web store that sells the most, that uh, makes the most Cyberbucks. So I set up a web store and it sold copies of this Bash script I had written, or actually it was a shell script. It wasn't born again shell, it was shell, born shell. Um, and the shell script was to help my mom uh, PGP decrypt her email. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I sold it for 50 cents worth of Cyberbucks um, and I wrote a little script where when you clicked on this little icon of two quarters then it would uh, request 50 cents worth of Cyberbucks from your local uh, eCash client and then if you paid then it would send you a copy of my shell script and after after the, the contest ended they informed me that I was I had made, I had operated the store that had been mo the most profitable in Cyberbucks, <laughs> if you excluded all the porn and gambling. <laughs> so I'm not sure how much competition I had in my category. <laughs> so then they said, and we're looking for a junior coder, so would you like to come try out for the position of junior coder at our company in Amsterdam? So I said, oh, well, I guess I should finish my college degree first. And they said, oh, okay, too bad. So then I hung up on them, and then I immediately called my best friend and said, you'll never guess what happened. DigiCash, the name of that company was DigiCash. DigiCash invited me to try out for a coding position. And he said, what did you tell them? And I said, oh, I said that I might as well finish my college degree first. <laughs> and he said, I just have one question is this exactly the kind of opportunity you've been waiting for? And that was literally all he said. Like, he only said two sentences in the whole conversation. And I was like, okay, I'll call you back. 
<laughs> so I hung up on him and I called him back and I said, actually, I think I could like put my college degree on hold. Um, so I, uh, I flew to Amsterdam. I was 21 years old at this time. So it was two years of me falling down the rabbit hole and, and, and thinking about nothing but uh, cryptography and digital cash before this, this stage. This stage. Uh, so I flew to uh, Amsterdam and uh, started working for them. And one of the first things that I did for them was take over the, uh, the shopping cart script for, with which people could sell things, you know, could have their website request cash payments. And then if you got, a ca if you got the payment, you would deliver some goods to the customer. Um, and that shopping script that I wrote for them was later used as prior art evidence to overturn Amazon's one-click patent. Nice. One, the one-click checkout patent, or at least partially overturn it. Uh, anyway, so that's that was all the beginning when I was 19 and then 21 years old, which was more than half of my life ago. Uh, and what was the next part of your question? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, how did you? Uh, how does that lead to uh, uh, ultimately your interest in Bitcoin and then um, uh, your involvement in the Zcash project? Yeah. So from the beginning, even even from like that first moment when uh, when reading Chom's digital cash paper on the lawn of the university, uh, I didn't like the fact that it was centralized. So Chom had invented a notion of privacy so that the central authority can't view all of the transaction information. Uh, but it could control uh, the creation of the currency. Um, and you had to rely on it to be there. It had uh, you rely on it for availability. Like if the central authority wasn't there, then you wouldn't be sure of uh, safety against double spend attacks. So I immediately started trying to figure out how could we have something like this that was decentralized. And then I remember talking about ideas along those lines with, with Chom and Amsterdam. And I never could come up with anything. Like we were aware of all kinds of stuff. We were aware of Adam Back's hash cash. But, it, you know, it, it, it was always like a puzzle with one missing piece. And it would never come together, so it would actually be um, secure. And so after I left DigiCash, um, I continued thinking about that and trying to invent decentralized cash in my spare time for continuously ever since. For like about a dozen years, uh, I tried to th think of how that could work. And... When Bitcoin came along, I assumed it was another another design that wouldn't quite work, that had a missing puzzle piece. Uh, so I liked Bitcoin, and I was glad someone was trying it, but I assumed it wouldn't work either. And then when it got like implemented and deployed, and people started using it, that's when I really started paying attention and revisited the design. And And that's a theme. I've gotten to the stage where I can't, understand i don't have enough brain bandwidth to learn about and understand things because uh, there's too many things nowadays uh, and so i tend to wait until i see if they work in practice and then try to understand them and satoshi actually uh, mentioned your blog in the alpha release of uh yeah i wrote i wrote a blog post about it about bitcoin uh, which is probably the first blog post that mentioned bitcoin um it was pretty short and it basically just said, here's an example of someone trying to do a truly decentralized 
currency, which is what I really want. Um, and I'm excited about this one because someone's actually implementing it. Um, and that's, I suppose that's why Satoshi linked to my blog. And then your next question was, uh, how did I get involved in the Zcash project? So years and years later, I was working on, well, years and years, yeah, years and years later, I was working on Tahoe LAFS, a secure decentralized storage system. It's like, it's kind of like IPFS. And um, Tahoe is pretty good uh, stuff because it's advanced cryptography. It uses uh, very strong and innovative cryptographic techniques. Um, and it's also fully implemented and deployed and people actually use it for stuff. Uh, so that's that theme again, where there's a big gap between something that's a good idea and makes a good white paper or a good science paper and something that's both a good idea and is also being implemented. So I had presented on on the Tahoe science to uh, to some cryptographers on occasion, and we'd written a paper about it, and that had that had drawn it to the attention of Matt Green, a cryptographer and computer scientist from Johns Hopkins. So at about the same time period, like in 2013, 2014, probably, a bunch of scientists, including Matt Green, had invented a series of cryptographic inventions, which culminated in a protocol they called ZeroCash. Zero coin then, right? Um, I've forgotten which year is, I've forgotten which year, which year is which. I think, I think at the San Jose Bitcoin conference, that was 2013, right? Or 2014. Ah, uh, yeah, right, right. I think the paper came out 13. in 2013. The San Jose Bitcoin conference was the, the pivotal moment when, I mean, as you know, that was a pivotal moment for, for Bitcoin in general. Um, because it was the first time the venture capitalists were present at a Bitcoin meetup. And I was there, and there were these two different teams of scientists there. One team from Johns Hopkins was there to present ZeroCoin, which was a version, like an earlier version of the ZeroCash concept. Uh, and another team uh, that included a couple of scientists from Israel, as well as, I think, MIT, was presenting... Uh, ZK Snarks, which is a really efficient form of zero knowledge proof. And at the San Jose Bitcoin conference, the zero coin team presented zero coin as a potential upgrade to Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin core developers who were presenting there made a official pronouncement saying, okay, zero coin is interesting. And we've heard this suggestion that zero coin could be an upgrade to the bitcoin protocol but we're definitely not going to put that into the bitcoin protocol anytime soon because it's novel and untested and the transactions are way too big it's like 20 30 kilobytes per transaction um and that was just it was like way out of bounds so and you know we don't want to what they said was we don't want to you know take the risk of trying to make this massive change, radical change in Bitcoin. So instead, we suggest that you go implement ZeroCoin in an altcoin first, and then we'll reconsider. So when those two teams of scientists met at the San Jose Bitcoin conference, they realized that their two scientific inventions put together could improve things, because the, the ZK-SNARK technology could make relatively succinct transactions about, you know, like about a kilobyte, practically. 
like the proof part is on the order of 288 bytes and then fill in all the other bits you need and it comes out to be somewhere on the order of a kilobyte and that might make it practical and the zero knowledge proofs are more general purpose they can prove the validity of the amount as well as proving the validity of the sender and that's an improvement over zero coin um, which in zero in the older protocol it hides the sender but it doesn't hide the amount transferred and so that's a privacy problem uh, plus which the transactions are huge so they got together and after that conference and then about a year later they came out with the zero cash protocol and then I had been talking to Matt Green uh, about such things about zero coin and then about zero cash and then he contacted me and said we're interested in getting the zero cash protocol implemented and deployed and you know production ready and internet scale and do you want to help with that uh, and I said oh boy do I but then I said oh wait actually I'm not sure because I'm really busy with Tahoe LAFS which I love is my baby and well I think privacy is terribly important both for human rights and for economies and for businesses I'm not sure enough other people recognize that that it would be widely used in the short term right so I'm not sure I want to turn away from Tahoe LAFS and then commit my life to working on this private cryptocurrency if it's always going to be a niche thing so then I slept on it and the next day I realized it's not always going to be a niche thing because cryptocurrencies without privacy will eventually lose fungibility so then I thought okay the importance and value of privacy is widely appreciated but only by a fraction of the population I don't know half or a tenth or nine tenths or some, something like that is the number of people who are willing to take steps um, and engage with a community because they value privacy uh, but the number of people who value fungibility is like everybody. Fungibility is absolutely necessary for everything, for commerce. So even though most people don't know what it means and know how know what the word means. but Why don't we define it? Why don't we explain it just yeah. briefly? I think it's important. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I'll do, I'll do the technical explainer if you don't mind yeah. you know, for people listening to this. Um, so fungibility is the idea that uh, every coin, every unit of value is equivalent to every other coin and you don't discriminate between them. And one of the ways you can look at fungibility is to discuss what happens when you lose it, right? When the most easy way to lose it is to have some form of blacklist um, in terms of physical cash, the way we could describe that is, let's say that there was a Department of Treasury blacklist that said the following um, $20 bill serial numbers are no longer valid. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it started off with, uh, you know, a few thousand bills, but, but it, it was a very popular program. <laughs> now there's now there's uh, a couple million serial numbers on there, so you have to have an app on your phone 
right? And um, every time you get paid a $20 bill, you have to check the serial number against the latest database from that app. And if you're offline at the time and you don't know if, it, if it's one of the banned bills or one of the good bills, well, you know, maybe you'll take it, but, but maybe you'll take it at a discount. So, like, I'll give you $15 for it because I don't currently have a connection. And now you have a $20 bill that's worth $15. Um, and in fact, the the ultimate the ultimate outcome of fungibility, if you take it to its expansion of non fungibility, of non fungibility, yeah, is the currency becomes barter again. Um, the whole point of uh, currency and the reason why it's better than barter is because you don't need to remember what the price of a haircut is in chicken and in oil <laughs> changes and in massages. Um, and you don't need to know what the price of a massage is in haircuts and oil changes and chickens. And you don't need to know what the price of a chicken is in haircuts and oil changes and massages. <laughs> the problem with barter is it doesn't scale is because you need hundreds of price points, right? And what cash gives you is one price point. But if you don't have fungibility, not all cash is equivalent, suddenly every piece of cash has a price, and that is less than what it says on the face. Um, and so there's a, there's a practical sense that, and people are already seeing this, I think, in Bitcoin, and that's that um, if your money ends up on the blacklist, you know, Coinbase and Circle shut down your account, right, because you got it from a gambling site or, or three hops ago it was right. stolen from Bitfinex or whatever. You know, we're already seeing that kind of effect. I've heard stories of people who've had their account shut down because they like bought or sold something, and it turns out that the customer who uh, bought the thing from them was associated with a black market. So it wasn't like they, they weren't they were not doing anything wrong or illegal, but unbeknownst to them, one of their customers had, and so their account got shut down. And because everything is recorded on a blockchain forever, uh, this obviously poses some issue uh, long term for the fungibility of Bitcoin. Right. It's a game of escalation because what happens is if you if you check all transactions two hops out, then criminals start doing three hop remixers. If you check mm -hmm. all transactions five hops out, then criminals use six hop remixers. If you check yeah. all transactions a hundred hops back, now you've tainted every Bitcoin in existence right. because of a hundred degrees of separation. And and here's the thing, I think people really easily grasp that blacklists will may inadvertently affect them if they deal with the wrong person, but that's kind of an that's kind of a it won't happen to me scenario. Right. But, but what they don't grasp is that as this develops, you then end up with a situation where the fundamental function of currency as a means of exchange starts breaking down because every Bitcoin is discounted by its probability of being on a blacklist and, or right. every currency unit. And at that point, um, the, the entire economic value of it uh, breaks down. So the ultimate conclusion is even if you're not on any of the blacklists, you can't actually use the money anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're actually seeing um, this sort of thing happening right now in India. Um, you know, with right. notes, ah, yeah. notes essentially being blacklisted. Um, I assume that's why you've been tweeting constantly about it. Too. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I've been tweeting about that a lot. It's really interesting. But it's actually that's not a case of non fungibility so much as it's a case of the government mismanaging the currency. 
in my opinion. But it does demonstrate mm -hmm. the discounts um, in that you can still sell a thousand rupee notes as long as you're willing to take 800 rupees for it. Uh. Right? So the money's, the money's face value has already been severely discounted as a result, mm -hmm. and the, which is the same outcome you'd have with a fungibility crisis. Yep. So one interesting fact is that fungibility is necessary for using something as a medium of exchange, but not so much as a store of value. Yeah. Like diamonds are all unique and special, and I don't know if they're a good store of value, but you can value a diamond. And like a used car, you can totally resell your used car. But you can't use diamonds or used cars as currency <laughs> because right. they're all unique and special, and it takes too much thinking to and like like Andreas very eloquently said, that means you don't just have a price point that you can use for deciding and communicating. Right. So I'm a lot more interested in cryptocurrencies as a medium of exchange in the long run. Um, so rewinding a couple of years, uh, three years, I imagine that this might happen. Like back then, Bitcoin was more fungible than it is today. Uh, but I thought because of its fundamental technical nature, it would tend, its fungibility would tend to erode over time. And so like I had done with David Chom, uh, I called Matt Green back and said, oh, no, wait, yes, let's do this. <laughs> so uh, the seven scientists, as I call them, who had come up with all of these cryptography breakthroughs, and me and my engineering team teamed up and formed the Zcash company. Was that the, the Skipper Lab team? I've, I'm doing a lot of background research, and, and they seem to show up a lot. Yeah, um, I'm not sure of the precise overlap between there were some some members of Skipper Lab who who weren't uh, founders of the Zcash company and vice uh -huh. versa. But Skipper Lab was uh, responsible for a lot of the uh, innovation in um, efficient zero knowledge proofs, Perfect. and and several okay. of them are founders of the zero of the Zcash company. So okay, so now so now we understand kind of you know your background in cryptocurrency. We understand um, you know the basic reason why the Zcash project exists. So um, through this whole journey, it, it leads us to this um, ceremony that has to be done in order to generate the initial uh, zero knowledge proofs. Correct? Yeah. So. So explain, I don't know if this is possible, but explain like I'm five. Um, so why is this uh, ceremony necessary in order to kick the currency off? Okay, so the, the zero knowledge proof system uses a, a public key as a tool for making a proof. So you, you make a proof. Do your, do your listeners already know at this point about the fact that Zcash has encrypted transactions, for example? <laughs> How much background should we give? We're going to probably cover that in episode one. So they are, they are going to know that um, uh, all the uh, anonymity properties of uh, Bitcoin and, and hopefully, or sorry, Zcash, and hopefully by the end of episode one, they'll have a, um, a sort of general understanding of why uh, this, um, this ceremony, this, this trusted setup uh, uh, parameter generation is necessary. Okay. Good. Um, but since you won't be on episode one, it would be nice if we could just get your own yeah. uh, take on it. All right. My, 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 my summary of it is that the, the zero-knowledge proofs that we use in Zcash to prove the validity of each transaction um, use a public key for the, when you're generating the proof, and then the uh, verifiers who are checking 
the validity of the transaction. They use the same public key to check the proofs. And it's just one public key for the whole system. Everybody uses the same public key to prove every transaction and to verify every transaction. Now, the uh, a, the um, analogous private key to that public key, if you knew that, you could forge bogus transactions and the verifiers would accept them. So that means if you know the private key, you can counterfeit money. Because the there's two, two different cryptographic tools in here, encryption and zero-knowledge proofs. The encryption is for privacy, right? That prevents the miners or anyone who looks at the blockchain from being able to trace your transactions or know the amount of your transactions and things like that. And then the zero-knowledge proofs are for correctness. They're for proving that you really did have the money and you didn't double spend it to anyone else first. So the public key that the people use to, that every sender uses to produce a zero-knowledge proof and all miners and all verifiers use to verify zero-knowledge proofs, that thing, which we also call the public parameters, you need to use a corresponding private key to generate the public parameters, but then you really don't want that private key to exist after that because it can be used to forge money. So like the, the, the naive way to generate this is to have somebody generate a public-private key pair uh, and then throw away the private part, and then we'll use the public part for the proofs. And that was the proposal uh, that Matt Green made when he presented Zero Cash for the first time at the uh, Real World Cryptography Conference in New York. And that didn't sound good enough to me because no matter how carefully you arranged the generation of that public key, I would be uncomfortable that either the, uh, the person responsible for it cheated and kept a copy of the private key, or someone else uh, backdoored their computer and stole a copy of the private key without their knowledge. So as soon as we started the Zcash project together, one of the things that we started working on was devising a safer way to generate the public parameters. And what we came up with was a multi-party computation where instead of generating the whole public key yourself, there's multiple different participants and each one generates a shard of the public key. And in doing so, now in the actual ceremony that we executed, there were six such participants. So when each one generates their shard of the public key, that requires the use of a corresponding shard of a private key. And then you bring the six shards of the public key together to produce the final public parameters and then destroy each of the six private key shards. And we analogize this to toxic waste. We say that the, um, the thing that you would get if you put all six of the private key shards together is toxic waste. It's analogous to you've got a factory that's producing something of value, and as an unfortunate side effect, it also produces these uh, chemicals, these byproducts. And the byproducts themselves are individually harmless, but if all six of the byproducts got mixed together in the same room, then it would form a toxic waste that would be very difficult to manage safely. So our strategy is we're going to uh, destroy each of the byproducts separately um, after we've produced the thing of value and before they can ever get together. So the intent was to make sure that the toxic waste secret key can never come into existence at all. So why is the toxic waste necessary itself? Mm. 
I didn't really answer that. Um, the I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I why can why can't we generate these proofs uh, without? Uh, there, maybe there Matthew are, Green. Yeah, would be yeah. Matthew Green would be a really good person to ask that. There there do exist zero knowledge proof systems uh, that don't have an accompanying private key, and so. That would be great, but all of those are way too inefficient, uh, even more inefficient than ZeroCoin. Remember, ZeroCoin takes tens of kilobytes per transaction. Well, the best-known proof systems are just totally impractical, um, the ones that don't have a private key. Um, I'm still hoping that in the future, scientists will come up with a new proof system, which is practically efficient, and also doesn't have a private key so that everyone in the world can verify the the public key is right and there's no possible private key. Um, our scientists are working on that problem, as are, I hope, other scientists around the world. Um, a general-purpose, zero-knowledge proof system that's efficient and private key-free. Uh, but for now, um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain to you the... I don't, I don't even really understand well enough myself how the uh, ZK-SNARK proof system uses the public key um, in such a way that it's vulnerable to this. So you'll have to ask Matt Green or someone. So we want, uh, I think it's important to, to, to hit two points here. And one is that uh, if even one of those uh, uh, private key shards is destroyed, then we're good. The other five can collude and... That's not going to help. That's an important point. That's a really important point. Yep, that's right. And the so to, to to flip it around, an attacker has to successfully compromise all six, and five of six is not good enough. Just like five of six of a Shamir secret is not good enough. It gives you no knowledge of the correct of the total the totality of the toxic waste. And so they have to successfully compromise all six, and if only one of the participants succeeds in destroying their components, um, we're done. Correct. Yeah. And I guess this leads to the next question. So during this multi-party computation, um, you only used uh, six people. So why only six? Why, why not 10? Why not 100? Well, because, um, because of practical considerations, um, the protocol that we designed... What happens if someone drops out? Like their internet fails, they get sick, someone in their family dies. Well, the only thing we could do with the current protocol is abandon that run and start over. And uh, that, would, that would take a lot of time. And it would also reduce the security of the protocol. Because uh, then if you were an attacker, you were trying to compromise some of the participants. And then the ones you couldn't compromise, you could DOS them. So they dropped out, and then we would, all, we would all start over. And then that would give you more and more chances to compromise all in, out of in. Also, there's a whole bunch of practical issues with the protocol. It took about six hours per participant, all told. So when we, we, when we, we did three test runs before we did the final ceremony run. In the test runs, we only had three participants. And it was still exhausting because it took like all day and uh, we found bugs, you know, and things went wrong. Like we found incompatibilities between our DVD writers and things like that. So in fact, two out of three of the test runs failed because of hitting bugs and people running out of time and shit. Uh, so 
it was actually pretty ambitious to scale it up from three to six for the final run. And I was really relieved when we got to the end after three consecutive days of work and we produced the public parameters using all six of the super high quality participants I had selected. And so who were those uh, six individuals? At the time, uh, only three of them were known, which was me and Andrew Miller, uh, a scientist from UIUC, who's one of the founders of the Zcash company. And, uh, and Peter Van Valkenburg, who's a policy expert uh, from Coin Center. You know Coin Center? They're really great. They're, they're the best educational and policy thinkers about cryptocurrencies. Uh, and then there were three other participants who were all pseudonymous, that only I knew who they were at first. And then after, uh, immediately after the ceremony ended, like before we all got off the phone, uh, we revealed the first pseudonymous person as having been in CC Group, this uh, big information security consulting firm. And their station had been um, in their forensics lab in Austin <laughs> uh, under surveillance. And they had, in addition to performing the whole protocol uh, with their air-gapped compute node, um, they had also set up a separate model compute node and attempted to hack into it at the same time. And then a few days or two weeks or something after the ceremony, um, Peter Todd unmasked himself as having been the fifth uh, participant. <laughs> That's interesting. And we don't know the sixth yet. And number six is the mystery man. That's right. Yeah, John Darberton, I call him. And, uh, uh, and will he be revealed at some point? I don't know. Ah, good. Interesting. Cliffhanger. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I told John uh, I would leave it up to him if he wanted to reveal himself. So, so uh, I have a question about hardware. One of the things I, when I read uh, uh, Peter Todd's post was uh, one little detail that stuck out to me was that you specifically told him to use an Intel i7. And that seems interestingly specific. And I'm wondering if you had, um, I suspected that it was because you wanted to make sure that uh, uh, enough different types of hardware were used. And so you assigned oh, no. that one to him. I wish. Ah. No, that's a good, that would be, that would have been cool. In fact, what it was, was that uh, during our test runs, we learned that there was only one line of hardware that was fast enough and was widely available. So you could pick it up from a random store. Ah. Because remember, it takes about six hours of work for each participant. So for the six-party the six party protocol that we did, the six-party ceremony, it took two consecutive days of ceremony, plus the pre previous day was like buying the hardware and setting up. And of that six hours, about half of it, or a third of it, was actually heavy lifting computation on the compute node. And then the other half or two-thirds of the time was transmitting the data over like DVDs and the network to the other compute nodes. So we realized that if you got some random other kind of hardware, like an ARM chip or even like an AMD chip, it would take so many hours to for each for you to compute your turn that that might it might cause the whole ceremony to fail. Like we might time out. We might all get too tired. You know, we might all have to go to work on Monday. Our internet might go out. So, alas, we had to tell everyone to get the fastest CPU, which is 
widely available in any store. And that was the one that I told Peter Todd to get. Gotcha. So beyond that, they, uh, the uh, participants were able to choose whatever hardware they wanted. Um, we gave them a lot of – there was this interesting trade-off between diversity and sort of innovation in defenses uh, versus sort of, um, you know, like the simplicity of having everyone do what we have already tested and we know works. So we told everyone, do the following. We give them a, a little sheet instructing them of what to do. And some of them innovated instead. <laughs> Peter Todd and John Darberton both, I don't think, did precisely what the instruction sheet said. And that's partly uh, why I recruited those two, was that I thought, I mean, all, six, all five of the other people I recruited, I chose because I thought they were ethical and wouldn't try to steal the secret or collude with anyone to do so, and because I thought they were highly competent and creative and would employ defenses, which would make it very hard for anyone to steal the secret from them. So we gave them this instruction sheet. The instruction sheet said, go to a random computer store, look for a, a, a desktop, like a, a tower, not a laptop, that has an Intel i7, I forget, I think it's a 6700 or 6700K were the two models that were widely available and fast enough. Um, buy like either the f floor show model or one from a box that you can just like grab if possible. Um, as opposed to like asking the salesman to go off into the back room and ring you in. Um, don't let it out of your sight after that. <laughs> Don't turn it on until you've unscrewed the lid and taken out all the radios. Never plug it into a network. Um, and so forth. And make sure it has a DVD reader writer built in and so forth. So that was all the instructions we gave. And uh, four out of six of the participants did exactly what we said. Um, Peter Todd instead bought a laptop because he had this crazy plan uh, which I didn't know anything about. Like I, I recruited him because I knew he was crazy and innovative and smart and um, knowledgeable about information security. Um, and I believed he was ethical and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't steal the secret. And, uh, but I strongly suspected he wouldn't actually do precisely what I said, and I was right. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only requirements I, the agreement he and I came up with when we, talked about it was I said uh, I, I have three I ask you to agree to three conditions for doing this a you won't do anything which is intended to prevent the ceremony from completing you won't do anything that's like sabotage that'll screw us all up B you won't try to steal the secret and C you won't lie after about anything that happened but beyond that you can say whatever you want you can uh, you know you're not signing on to any obligation to me other than those three conditions. And we didn't pay him. We're, we're reimbursing his expenses, uh, but he asked not to be reimbursed for his time. And so I happily agreed. That's the appropriate thing for this, since he's not acting in the interest of the Zcash company as much as in the interest of the public. Um, anyway, so he didn't get a desktop and so on and so forth. He got a laptop because he was planning to do the computation in a moving car <laughs> on an empty Canadian <laughs> highway, which I think well, is two awesome. Two are filming every move. Yeah. And I don't remember precisely what John Darberton's statement says about where he acquired his computer. 
So I'll have to review that. So just to, uh, to make sure that everyone, uh, the, the listeners know, that uh, the rest of you weren't all in the same location, right? You were spread out. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe we could talk about the architecture of yeah, the design good. of the ceremony. Yeah, that's a good point. So the, the number one factor, like we said at the beginning, was the uh, multi-party factor where it would require you to compromise all six of the different participants before you could reconstruct the toxic waste. And then the next factor was that we recruited these six different people that I considered to be trustworthy and competent uh, who lived in different locations. And we kept, we kept it secret. Like nobody, the public didn't know anything about who or when. And the other participants besides me uh, didn't know three out of the six uh, who they were or where they were. And then the next factor was the air gapping. So I told you how we bought a random computer that avoids uh, supply chain attacks, uh, which the Snowden disclosures revealed does sometimes happen in real life, that you order a computer from a store to have shipped to your house and some attacker intercepts the shipment and puts a backdoor into the computer and then redelivers it to your house. Uh, so that's why we used uh, random purchase instead. And then the air gapping avoids a whole bunch of attack surface, right? I told you how we t- instructed all the participants to remove the radios before ever turning on the computer for the first time and never plug it into any network connection during its lifespan. And that really narrows down the opportunities for any attacker. Um, now, in order to... Just as a, just a quick comment here, um, you know, I'm Desandreas. I'm not affiliated with, uh, with a Zcash company, and I hadn't seen the ceremony in advance, but I can tell you that what Zuko is describing as a practice here is, is, is a fairly common best practice for the, for the very, very paranoid, for very high security operations. And right. it's the same practice I use. Um, to build systems for third key solutions in terms of um, purchasing computers uh, uh, from sources that you do not visit on the web. You just show up, drop cash, pick up the box that you want, not the one they offer you, Mm -hmm. uh, take it home, surgically remove all of the radios, microphones, speakers, any communication infrastructure, uh, air gap it completely, you know, glue the case shut even, and then rebuild it as an air gaps machine that never goes onto the network. That is standard practice for third key solutions. It's right. also standard practice under the um, uh, the cryptographic security standards we've developed um, through the uh, crypto consortium. So um, this is it's not completely as crazy as it sounds. But it's also <laughs> a best practice. Yeah. Air, air gapping of that kind is also uh, best practice in the military, apparently. Um, yeah. By the way, we, we, we made a mistake. We forgot to instruct people to remove the, the uh, speaker. Oh, uh, right. Oh, well. It's probably, probably not a big deal. A little PC speaker beeper in those towers. So when the, when the computation's done, uh, air gapped, like, you, you, it's, the computer's not actually connected to the Internet at all. Is that, is that correct? Correct. So let me just sum up. There's approximately three or so of the most important defenses. The multi-party part with with the the important 
consequence that the attacker would have to compromise all of us in order to get the toxic waste. Then secondly, the air gapping was the most important defense. And then thirdly, well, you've got to communicate the uh, public keys in and out uh, from the compute nodes in order to generate the final public parameters. So how do you communicate if you don't want to plug into a network? And the answer we came up with was we're going to use append-only DVD-Rs. That was clever. Yeah, I'm really happy about this part because that means even if you somehow, as an attacker, if you somehow compromise the compute node, you cannot cover the trail of how you did so. You can't erase the evidence. That's wonderful. Because it's been burned with a laser onto a bit of shiny plastic. So we, uh, we all have, each of the six participants has a set of DVDs like this that have a recording of all of the communication that went in and out of their compute node. Um, ours we took to the Internet Archive in San Francisco in person. Like, I didn't let the disks out of my sight after the ceremony. Um, they, didn't let, they never left my person until uh, we physically delivered them to the Internet Archive in San Francisco and uploaded them to the, uh, the Internet Archive and recorded the hashes. Wow. That's good. And, and then uh, will you also be releasing the, uh, an, an ISO of, of all of them, right? That way we could potentially recreate the entire, the entire ceremony ourselves. Yes. And um, we, yeah, we've already uploaded all of that data to the Internet Archive. I can give you the link. Um, you can also get it from the other participants, uh, which is you know, part of the redundancy here, is that every participant has got all the information sufficient to recreate the results and to inspect all the communication that went out of the, went in and out of their compute node. Um, and this points to one of the weaknesses. Um, in, in information security, there's, there's never perfection, right? right? And it's very helpful to look at both sides, like enumerate all the positive defenses and enumerate all the weaknesses and gaps or risks. Uh, so one of the biggest weaknesses of this whole ceremony is that we were all booting the same uh, operating system and you know program on each of our compute nodes. And so if that thing had been backdoored, if the, the, the software that we all ran was backdoored, then the attacker could recover the toxic waste. So the defense against that is that we have published, widely published and you know tweeted and timestamped and internet archived uh, and DVD burned, that software so that we can uh, anyone can ver can reproduce that build and inspect it for backdoors. But we need more people to do that. Like you, Austin, <laughs> need to go forth and do that and uh, verify that the thing we booted was safe. Some other people have done that. Andrew Miller's already done it. Um, I'm not really aware of anyone else having double-checked yet. And, and I assume, of course, that the uh, the users were asked to input their own sources of randomness they, were, uh, they weren't relying on the that's right on the okay yeah you can see that in the in the movie from if you watch any of it so a lot of the participants made video or or uh or time lapse snapshots or whatever of their of their station um so you can see how the when the time comes to input your own entropy into your compute node um we hid the keyboard from the cameras and uh you know, banged random characters into the keyboard until the compute node was satisfied. 
And by the way, what it did was actually combine the keyboard input with the uh, Linux Dev Random device. Excellent. Um, how long had the team been working on designing uh, the architecture behind the chassis or the ceremony? Well, like the genesis of it was um, even before we agreed to team up. When when Matt Green. Um, uh, spoke about zero cash at the real world crypto conference. I, I went up to the microphone after and said that part about generating the public parameters on a single computer and then destroying the computer, that's not good enough. And um, mm-hmm. that was sort of my first contribution <laughs> to, the, to the Zcash <laughs> protocol was telling them that's not good enough and we have to do better. And so then we you know, considered that to be one of the highest priorities and one of the riskiest and most difficult parts of the of the development of Zcash for the whole three years that it took. It really is an amazing thing. That um, I liked how, how Peter Todd uh, uh, compared it to like the the DNSSEC signing uh, ceremonies. Like it was like this just blows that out of the water, and that's already pretty impressive. Yeah, it's this is this is way better because of the multi-party computation aspect. The DNSSEC stuff is what you get if you go down the path of having a single point of failure and then you try to get a high level of assurance about what happened there on that one single, on that one single device. Just from an, like an operational security standpoint, I, 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 think, I think you did an amazing job. And the, the multi-party computation Thanks. thing just makes it uh, just unbelievable, unbelievably difficult. I would love to see like a cypherpunk fan fiction novel on how the NSA <laughs> I know. owned everyone because it would be pretty awesome. It's like, it's like science fiction. Right. It's amazing that we live in the science fiction novels that I used to read when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, as far as um, how you reached out to people, um, uh, Peter mentioned you reached out on Twitter. Um, I'm wondering if you, uh, how you reached out to the rest of the, um, the team, and uh, even if it was initially encrypted or not, it doesn't matter to me. What I'm more interested in is metadata. Yeah. Right. Like if I were a, a three-letter agency and I'm watching you, I would just get everyone you're talking to that seems competent, and I'd start monitoring them. Yeah. Um, there's not a very good uh, way to avoid uh, leaking metadata about who you talk to. Right. There's there's nothing that's practical and that enough other people are using as a communications mechanism that protects the metadata. So instead, I just relied on the fact that I often communicate with a whole lot of people using end-to-end encryption. Um, so so if, if an attacker was trying to track down everyone that I talked to, then they would have a lot of, a lot of work to do. Because <laughs> I, I try not to use clear text um, unnecessarily, right? Right. Uh, one of the things uh, we had discussed was uh, the potential for the ceremony to be repeated in the future, uh, and also for the, and not just repeating the ceremony, but more importantly, changing the public parameters um, to strengthen mm-hmm. them as we understand better the, um, the, the strength characteristics of ZK Snarks. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so... Wait, there's a couple of different things I think you just asked about. Um, maybe three different things. One, we might want to repeat the ceremony because maybe in the future we can figure out how to do it with more people or different people or use even stronger defenses than we used the first time. Second is if we want to change the proof uh, system, like if we want to upgrade the protocol to be more efficient or to have new features 
or something like that. Any upgrade which requires the provers to prove something different about their payment, that can't use the current parameters because the parameters are only useful for proving a certain statement. The current parameters are only useful for proving that you transferred some Zcash, uh, that you owned it, and that you didn't didn't transfer more than you owned or that you didn't double spend or anything like that. But if we want to add um, a new feature like have user-defined asset types where you can create a new token type, um, like sort of like colored coins, but instead of doing it with coloring coins, um, you would do it with zero-knowledge proofs. Um, or if we wanted to make a new kind of more efficient cryptography or a new stronger cryptography, that would all require a new execution of the ceremony. But the bottom line is that this wasn't necessarily just a one-off Genesis event. Uh, this uh, may be required as a future upgrade um, and happen again or something similar to this. That's right. Yeah, I really want to upgrade. There's a lot of reasons uh, why I want to upgrade. I want to add new features and improve performance in the Zcash protocol. Um, and the, crypt, the elliptic curve that we are using right now is weaker than we'd like. Um, from a cryptographer's point of view, it's something on the order of 96 or 99 bits of strength. Um, and I'd be happier if it were about 128 bits. It's not 2 to the 80, as Peter Todd was, I guess, curious about in um, blog post. Yeah, I think his blog post said that he had heard 2 to the 80 from someone, but he didn't say who. I I don't know. And he, said, and he specifically said um, you were... He wasn't sure if you were actually aware of uh, the number of bits of security as well. Well, nobody's sure. Um, that stuff is really theoretical and speculative. It it used to be thought that this curve was about 128 bits of security. And then a recent science um, discovery says, oh, actually, it's probably a few less. Um, the best estimates from all the scientists that I've talked to are somewhere between... 96 and 99 bits is the current strength of it. Um, I don't know where I don't I don't know where Peter Todd heard that two to the 80 number. I'd like to know because two to the 80 would be um, uncomfortably low. Like I'm the one who made the call when we found out about that uh, that science uh, discovery that showed the strength of this curve was less than two to the 128. Uh, I'm the one who said, okay, it's probably at least 2 to the 96, and that's good enough for now. So we're not going to spend our time uh, switching the curve to a stronger curve right now because we have a bunch of other stuff to do to launch Zcash. Is it the case that if they if they broke uh, – so if they defeated the curve, it, they wouldn't be breaking zero knowledge, right? They would only be breaking soundness. So they'd be able to mint coins, but they couldn't uh, de-anonymize. Is that correct? Well, I'm 99% sure you're right. Uh, because even if you could break the zero knowledge of the proof system, that wouldn't give you any information. Any That wouldn't let you break the privacy of the Z, uh, Zcash user. Yeah, there's just there's so little information in that. There's no information. Yeah, I mean, it's an encrypted... What, I, what, what you see is, as a, as a member of the public, or if you're an attacker, you see this transaction that's being encrypted um, you know, with a, a high-quality stream cipher, and then you see a zero-knowledge proof that the, um, the so somebody knew a private key, like a, pre, a hash pre-image, that maps to a note, 
and that note has never previously been spent, and the amount of money in that note is the valid, uh, the valid amount. So even if you could violate, even if if you could learn anything, I just uh, this is just my intuition. I don't have any kind of proof of this, but my intuition is that no uh, cryptographic breakthrough against the zero knowledge proof system leak enough information about your secret right. uh, to threaten your privacy. Um, right. but that's, it's just one of those things. Like I just have an intuition, like pre-images, like we do all this hashing and that just leaves so little information in the proof system in, in the proofs. That's just in, in, an unproven theory on my part. So we're talking about the 96 bits versus uh, 80 or even 128, which would be wonderful. Uh, we're, we're really talking about the soundness of the proofs and not the, uh, the zero-knowledge uh, right. aspect, and, which is what I'm trying to get. And at. what that boils down to, that's right, and what that, what that means is that if someone could brute force the curve, they would not gain the ability to spy on anyone else's transactions or steal anyone else's money, any individual's money, but they would gain the ability to forge new money. Right, and that's also the case, right? If if toxic waste was uh, created, they wouldn't be able to de-anonymize. They would they would be able to to print essentially. Right. Um, there are four different ways that you could gain the ability to print money, and I'm pretty sure that none of the four of them are ever going to happen. But uh, but I want to take further steps to um, to to verify whether any counterfeiting has happened. That's a that's a proposal I have for an upgrade to Zcash, uh, which I expect will be controversial because if you if you go to that version of Zcash, uh, the version that I want to advocate for, you can't keep your wallet offline indefinitely. You have to let your wallet connect to the internet every so often in order to refresh. So you would need some sort of IPFS or no no okay. What do you mean? What were you thinking? To be able to allow your allow your wallet to stay connected to the internet. Um, I mean, I was just thinking like you take your your wallet, whether it's a hardware device or a uh, software running on a on a on a general purpose computer, um, and you let it uh, you know connect to the blockchain every few months. Thanks again for joining us in part one of our discussion with Zuko Wilcox, the CEO of Zcash Company, and Andreas Antonopoulos. In our next episode of the Zcash Review, join us in part two of our discussion with Zuko, where we're going to be talking about future changes of, to the Zcash protocol, mining Zcash, the slow start, and the founder's reward. We've got a bunch of great stuff ahead. If you're interested in sponsoring a future episode, email us at matt at zcashreview.com. Or if you just want to send us a friendly note and tell us how you like the show. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube now. Check the show notes for links. We also love support on all our social media accounts like Twitter and Facebook. Both of those you can find us at Zcash Review. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.